As we've been exploring our series on seeking spiritual renewal and revival, we've been approaching it against the backdrop of all the scripture, right from Genesis 1 right through to Revelation 22, and to see how that whole narrative around what God is doing in creation and in and through his people is a story of seeking spiritual renewal and revival. And today we're coming to a part of the story that is less familiar um, and does require more of a big picture and background. We are focusing on that passage in particular that um, Grant just gave us from Nehemiah chapter 2 and his um, uh, task, his project of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. But to understand where that narrative fits, I need to do some big picture um, background by way of what's happening in the wider world and it's massive in terms of the movements and then what God is doing in and through that. So the story of Nehemiah is a building or a rebuilding program and it's not just rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, it's also rebuilding the people of God for it to be their home and that whole process um, is much more of a um, uh, major project than you can simply say, here's the project, this is the plan, let's get to it and build it, tick, done it. it it's actually much more uh, complex than that. So, by way of background, we need to know something around what's happening in the wider world in the time of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. The two books of Ezra and Nehemiah come towards the end of our history section of the Old Testament. Our Old Testament books are set aside into different sections. There's a history section that runs through 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther is tucked into there as well. After this, a different section of the Old Testament goes back into Psalms and the wisdom literature. Then we go into the section of the prophets. So we're at the end of the history section of the Old Testament narrative. We've focused in recent weeks on the experience of uh, the people going of Judah um, going from Jerusalem, which is eventually destroyed and taken in captivity over to Babylon. And we're focused on Babylon as one of the the great cities of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon as one of the the great wonders of the ancient world, of its amazing water system, and the river Euphrates with its great um, uh, wider palace area set aside with the gardens, and then the Tower of Babel, and atop the Tower of Babel is the Temple of Marduk, which touches the heavens. And uh, it's in that space that God's people were taken in captivity and spent uh, 70 years in, uh, in exile. That's partly the area we would see in the brown on the screen is what was the kingdom of Babylonia. But they were defeated by the Persians. And the impact of the Persian Empire, initiated especially by Cyrus the Great, in 559, um, developed the great first great superpower of the, the world has known, 
and uh, under Cyrus it went right across to the uh, the very um, meeting point between the what you might describe as the Middle East and Europe. So if you know the battles of the the Greeks and the Persians, the battles of Sparta and um, those great moments of Marathon, the Battle of Marathon and so on, that is the Cyrus is the, is the king in that sort of space. So he defeated right across to what we would call modern Turkey. Um, uh, was conquered in 547. He came down and conquered the whole area where the Babylonians had been, Babylon and Jerusalem, across his son, defeated Egypt, and then they went right across to India and Afghanistan. It was all part of one great Persian empire. And it actually was a time of flourishing. Um, it was very cultivated. It developed a postal system, an efficiency of governance that worked very well. And uh, against that backdrop, we have the biblical history develop, where it's helpful to know what's happening in the, the wider world where we understand the story of Israel within it. Firstly, we see the Assyrian Empire that came earlier. Um, it's around Syria and up towards, uh, heading across towards Turkey. Um, they defeated the northern kingdom of Israel, about 10 of the tribes, uh, in 722, and they never returned. They uh, gravitated around the capital of Samaria, um, and became, in due course, the Samaritans. The Babylonian Empire was the one that had three main waves of uh, coming against Jerusalem. First of all, in 605, they took um, Daniel and the promising leaders, young leaders, as the first cohort, um, and then a series, 597, then 587 was the decisive defeat. Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, the holy items in the temple were taken in captivity over to Babylon. And so they stayed in Babylon for 70 years from the time of Daniel until God sent what the Old Testament describes as God's servant, Cyrus, the king of Persia, defeated the Babylonians. And there's a wonderful uh, stele, there's an amazing archaeological artefact that records that uh, when Cyrus came to Babylon, he, he released the Hebrews to return to their homeland. So it's all documented in our um, history. <clears throat> but when it got to that stage of saying, as I mentioned last week from Isaiah 40, that wonderful message to say the time, the 70 years has come to an end, the time has come to return to Jerusalem, it wasn't a case of, okay, let's pack up our bags, we're all heading back. Um, it went through a series of waves and only a small portion of the people went back to Jerusalem. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah, the one book combined, gives the history in three sections. The first return was under Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel's name is quite significant. Notice the last part of the name, Babel. He is one of the generation who was born in Babylon. He never knew what Israel looked like previously. And he gathered together the first party that returned and they rebuilt 
the temple and they had a go at rebuilding the walls. The generation in Zerubbabel's time who did remember what the old temple looked like, the great temple of Solomon, said what you have come up with is nothing like the glory of the original temple, Solomon's temple. In fact, we look at this paper and paste example and we just, we grieve, we weep. This is nothing like the golden days. And then there's a 50-year gap. Some 50 years later, Ezra is the next one to return. And he comes as a priest, someone who knows the law, the Torah, and he says that we need to learn the lessons that caused the exile in the first place. It was that we were not reading God's law and taking it seriously. In between that, just as a matter of interest, the book of Esther occurs. Esther, who traces her origins back to the Hebrews um, and identifies with the Hebrews, is taken into the, uh, the king's harem. I got the word wrong in the first sermon. I was saying Harlem the whole time over. And I realised afterwards, it's sort of close but not quite the same. Don't read anything into that. I've had a chance to get my head into gear. Uh, I was taken into the king's harem and excelled in the king's harem and God was able to use that to provide uh, protection at a time of genocide against the Hebrews. That's where the story of Esther fits. And then after Esther, somewhere overlapping, we're not exactly sure, Nehemiah returns. And Nehemiah is more about the building. So where Esther, sorry, where Ezra is talking about the, the beliefs, the listening to the Torah, the spiritual side, Nehemiah is focusing on the bricks and mortar, literally, of rebuilding the walls. That's the backdrop. What we need to note is this Persian Empire was a seriously massive empire. And to be the cup-bearer, which was what Nehemiah's role to the king, is more than being a chief steward, you know, he's come up through the, uh, the household and gone through the various number four butler, number three butler. To be the cup-bearer to the king of an empire of this nature is to be the most, one of the most trusted people in the whole regime. Because a king with that sort of power was quite understandably paranoid about being poisoned. We know something of that paranoia in the contemporary world with superpowers and dictators and others. So to be a a cupbearer to the king meant that the king trusted Nehemiah to check that the food being offered is not poisoned, is safe to eat. Nehemiah would test it before he then passed it on to the king, day in and day out. He is a trusted figure. Now, it's interesting, just to go back for a moment, that uh, this period of the Old Testament the people of Israel are free. They're no longer slaves, but they're living within this Persian world. And it raises interesting uh, parallels for us to what does it mean to be a minority-believing group against a superpower which has a very strong culture that is not the same as the culture of the people of faith? How do you navigate those questions? How 
do you work within it? What do you compromise on? How can God use people in that space to continue and to further his work, including practices around marriage and issues and where Esther's taken into a harem? So it's interesting to read those passages of the Bible because that's not unlike where we find ourselves now in our wider world, is that the church is increasingly a minority presence in lots of Western communities. And the, the, the cultural power of the superpowers of our world are incredibly daunting. And so they were back at that time. So we have, um, first of all, Zerubbabel, and then Ezra, and then finally Nehemiah, making their way back to Jerusalem. Though note that Nehemiah is not coming from Babylon. He is in Susa, which is in the bottom right corner of our map. Um, Susa was the summer capital where the king went of the whole empire. So it's the heart, the summer capital of the heart of the Persian empire. And it's quite a long journey for him to come back to Jerusalem remembering that he actually wasn't born or hadn't had a prior experience in Jerusalem. Nehemiah makes that move because he identified as one of the Hebrews, one of the uh, people of Judea, a Jew, um, and had approached the king, the superpower of this amazing empire, with a request. He prayed believed God was putting into his mind that he was called to go back to Jerusalem. And as he went to the king, Artaxerxes at that stage, and said, I, I want to take leave from my role. I, need, I believe I need to go back to my homeland, which I've never been to. And there's a job to be done. I need to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem because I'm hearing reports that is in disarray. And Artaxerxes gives him permission to go. Not full-time, he's actually supposed to come back. And eventually he does come back um, after about 12 years. Not only does Nehemiah ask permission to go for that trip, he also says, but I can't just go back, I need to have stones, I need to have timber, I need to have all the building resources, and I need to have a, a workforce and finance and your authority to ask the neighbouring people there to provide all that's needed to rebuild these walls. And King Artaxerxes so trusted Nehemiah, said, I will give you that. So Nehemiah and his party go back with permission then to, to take the stones that were needed, the timbers that were needed, and the workforce that was needed. Because Nehemiah said, I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem but he had a strong personal sense of vocation, of calling. And what he discovered is that the walls were an absolute mess. They had had a go at rebuilding the walls. They hadn't lasted, and it was just so much of a rubble. He couldn't even get his single horse through the, uh, the narrow pathways around Jerusalem. And he uh, cried out and said that this, this cannot be. So Nehemiah starts on a building program 
And there's a whole lot of levels that we could explore this in terms of the history of the day and uh, the leadership of Nehemiah. And I'll touch on that briefly, but I don't want to make that just all about leadership. But it was galvanizing a workforce for this building program, program to take the rubble and to rebuild the walls. As he did so, as we look at the book of Nehemiah as a whole he faces a series of challenges, obstacles, and frustrations. And the accounts we get in Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra is though he kept a journal of his experience, and that's been taken and written up into the book of Ezra. Nehemiah seems to have kept a journal, and that is what is written up in the book of Nehemiah. It's written in his first-hand account and description of the challenges that he faced. As I run through this list... I'm just going to jump to where I'm going to land at the end of the sermon. So I'm just giving you a flag of where I'm heading. Is that we'll see this building project is not finished. Jesus continues the building program. And that rebuilding program of the temple and of Jerusalem is now the building program of the church. We are the living stones. We are part of this ongoing project And what Nehemiah went through is not dissimilar to the challenges we face as a church. So what did did, uh, Nehemiah face? Ridicule about the whole project, his ability to do it and what is he thinking of doing, especially where the critics were coming from those who had not gone into exile. And those who hadn't gone into exile into Babylon wasn't because they were good and righteous. It's because they were doing deals with the other surrounding people. They carved out a space for themselves amongst the other nations. And as a result, they stayed in the land and were able to establish themselves. They resented the people from exile returning and saying, you've got no claim. You're taken away. We are the people who have a claim for this space. They were the ones full of ridicule. They were the ones who uh, were angered to the point of rage. They were enraged at what Nehemiah was seeking to do because it threatened their space and it brought change and they didn't want that change. It had setbacks and initial failure. Verse 10 of chapter 4 says they started doing some building And one of the walls started to collapse. The whole structure was not sound. And the critics said, you don't even know what you're doing. Look at that. It's coming apart. And they had to deal with that initial failure. They had the fear of the people, were afraid of those critics of uh, what might go wrong. They had internal dissent of others within it jostling for leadership of we should go this way, do that way, no, we shouldn't do this. And there was plotting and false accusations. Reports are going out around saying, well, we'll report back to the king that Nehemiah, you're just a little mini empire building. You're just building your own little kingdom here. And that wasn't what Nehemiah was seeking to do, but that was the false accusations that were reported back to the king. And finally had to deal with false prophets, people who claim that God has spoken to us and is saying, this is, you're doing us wrong in Nehemiah, you shouldn't be doing this, it should be quite different. Until we discovered and Nehemiah sought 
before God is saying, don't listen to those people. That's not me, God was saying to Nehemiah. That little pattern of challenges, frustrations, obstacles, is not unknown in the life of the church. Just saying, in our own way, in our own mission. So how does Nehemiah respond? Well, first of all, he gives an honest state of the nation. He couldn't say, look, let's just keep in our bubble or let's pretend all is fine. And in particular, for the mainstream churches of the Western world, that is one of the great dangers. We have continued to look at how the church was in the 1950s and the 1960s and with the Billy Graham crusade and where we had a significant voice in the wider community and resources and buildings and all those things that were happening. And we could tell ourselves, that's just like the tide going out, it's all going to come back to us. To stay as we are, all will be well. The trouble is that's not an honest reading of the world in which we find ourselves and the movements. I believe one of the responsibilities of leadership is to give a state of the nation, to say we face significant challenges. We cannot assume that younger generations are just going to come to their senses and return to church. We cannot assume that people from other non-Anglo backgrounds are just going to come and love the Anglo version of church. We need to recognise that we have significant missional challenges around us. Nehemiah said to the people, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. So he gives an honest statement. This is where we are. These are the challenges and these are the opportunities. Nehemiah is a leader constantly brought before the people the importance to seek and discern the mind of God. This isn't about just developing a great strategic plan and breaking it down into steps and resources and what's the budget. It's more about seeking where God is at work in and through us at this time. I also told them, he said, about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. He told them a story that I went, I prayed, and I went to the king, not knowing how he was going to answer and respond. And as the positive response came, he said, I can see God is behind this. God is in this, this movement, this moment. And then what I think is the most important verse for us to take away as we reflect on this passage, this is the one, if you doze for a moment, this is the one to wake up on. It wasn't God saying to them, just leave it to me. Go to sleep and come back and wake up and it's all going to be done. It's all going to be great. God wasn't saying, look, just go away like a, you know, those TV shows where they say, look, go on a holiday, go up to Fort Douglas or wherever and we'll bring a team in, makeover team, they'll work busily and you'll come back and it's this wonderful new makeover. God says it's not like that. If you want to do it, God says, I will provide the resources. I'll provide you with the opportunities. But you need to step up. And I believe God is calling us 
not just in terms of the wider church, but here at St. Matthew's, saying to us, if you are seeking renewal and revival, you need to step up. You need to renew our resolve. We need to renew our commitment and take our part collectively in that opportunity. I love the reply. Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Now we could stop it there. That's a pretty good challenge. But, well, something of that rebuilding program still exists in Jerusalem, which has gone for a long history since then. The Romans destroyed the rebuilding of Herod's temple and the walls eventually under the battles and only portions of the, uh, the walls of Jerusalem remain. But one portion has been dated back to the rebuilding under Nehemiah. It's that corner that we can see in the centre of the screen. I haven't, you know, I, haven't, I haven't been to Jerusalem. love to do so one day. But that is part of that continuing history. This is real world stuff, not just a fanciful narrative or tale. But where does it fit against our bigger backdrop? Well, first of all, we can see what was the challenge of returning from exile? There's a number of things we could observe about that return from exile, initially from Babylon and then from the, under the Persian Empire. We can observe that the return from exile and the renewal and revival took much, much longer than anticipated. There was no quick fix. In fact, it went across generations. Each generation had their part to play in that renewal and revival. We can see that the return was shaped over a number of movements and moments of renewal and revival. It wasn't just one big event. That was the turning point. But there was a wave of renewal and revival, another wave, and another wave. And so we see that in the life of the church today. The return from exile wasn't going back to the glories of the past, but it was a partial rebuilding and restoration on the foundations of the past. But what emerged was quite new, and it wasn't going back to the old. The return from exile wasn't completely accomplished. It's one of the things that's almost frustrating about reading Ezra and Nehemiah. First of all, you read the story of Zerubbabel and you think they're back. They've come from, in that case, Babylon. They're back into Jerusalem. They do some rebuilding. They start to rebuild the temple. They start to rebuild the walls. You get to the end of that section and think, now can they say job done? Except it's not. It's incomplete. And then you wait until the next cycle where the story comes with Ezra's return. He's the, the spiritual leader and has them reading the Bible, the the. the the, uh, the book of the law has them repenting and worshipping and coming before God, bringing a, the spiritual renewal. And you get to that end of that stage and saying, is this the big turning point? And then suddenly, it's not. And they slip back into their familiar patterns of laziness and disobedience and uh, doing their own thing. And we get to the stage of Nehemiah, or maybe he's going to bring it all together. He's a good leader. They rebuilt the wall and you get to the end of the, the Nehemiah cycles of the story and you said, yeah, it's sort of there, but it's still work to be done. 
And so it continues. And in particular, whilst the physical return and rebuilding was undertaken, the spiritual transformation of the heart that Jeremiah and Ezekiel had talked about, that wasn't really evident. And the failures of the past were repeated. Many chose not to return. Many stayed within the life that they had built for themselves and would not let go. Stayed in Babylon, stayed within the Persian Empire. And in particular, the kingdom was never re-established. They had, pro- holding on to the promises of Isaiah and Jeremiah, that a king of the house of David would return to the rebuilt capital city, God's holy city, take his seat upon the throne, and the kingdom of God will be in and through the kingdom, the renewed kingdom of Israel. Except it never happened. Alongside that desire of when is the king, the promised king, going to return and take his seat within Jerusalem was a great prophetic silence. At the time when world history was going through massive movements, not only the growth of the Persian Empire, but then Alexander the Great sweeping through and defeating the Persians and uniting the whole Persian Empire with the Greek world into this great Hellenistic Empire, is barely mentioned in our Old Testament narratives. It is there and towards the final chapters of Daniel and it's there behind and a little bit in what's been preparing the way in Nehemiah. But we don't have much around that wider world history. In fact, there are no great prophets standing up who are sort of saying, this is the time has come. There is a great prophetic silence for 100 years, for 200 years, for 300 years, for 400 years until a prophet arises, his name being John the Baptist. And so the stir of excitement, he looks like a prophet, he sounds like a prophet, he speaks with that insight of a prophet. And so the gospel stories pick up the narrative. But not only does John the Baptist signal that God is now bringing this whole new level of this work, of this return from exile, but he was preparing the way for one greater than himself, a much greater, more wonderful rebuilding project than would ever be imagined was being introduced through the person of Jesus of Nazareth, that John said he is the one. And so people had all sorts of questions. Is he going to be a king like David? Is he going to be a military ruler? What sort of king is this? But God is working in and through him and gathering people across the nations. What we do see in this building project, Jesus was accused, the charge that was brought against him is that he spoke against the temple. He's saying he's going to destroy the temple and three days it's going to be rebuilt. What has taken 20 years for Herod to do some rebuilding and even then it's been, you know, centuries have been rebuilding it. Jesus is saying the temple is going to be blown away and this, 
Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. He's a traitor, was the accusation made against him. Jesus said, if you think that's the temple of God, if you think that is the seat of God's home, God's dwelling place, God's presence, that's not the temple. I am the temple. And the people who are drawn into me are the living stones. And so we see that picked up in the theme from 1 Peter. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Suddenly we see ourselves in the narrative. We continue to be part of God's rebuilding program. But we all come in different shapes and sizes. And I can tell you that the art of putting together a wall with different shapes and sizes looks so easy in that picture. If you've ever tried it, I can tell you it's not easy. (laughs) That is part of our challenge as we go. But where we find the assurance is the words of the apostles. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Isaiah made that prophecy. Peter said, this is speaking about Jesus, the one in whom is the ultimate cornerstone. That is our challenge In our present day, we have a reading of the nature of the world and the opportunities that God provides around us. But he says to us, are you prepared to stand up, to have a resolve, to have the faith and the trust and the vision to say, we will do our part in our generation at this moment to be part of a much bigger rebuilding project. Amen.